Okay, so welcome everybody to the uh, Indus restaurant and for our special event with Bikuni Santusika. Did I say that right? You did. I did, okay. It's quite good, quite impressive. Huh? Yes. Uh, so she's here for uh, six days during the, this special uh, Vasa period. The monks and nuns can travel for up to six days, six nights. So I'm very appreciative that she would give us some uh, time to come and share Dharma with us. Uh, also very appreciative to the Indus restaurant for giving us these facilities uh, in order to, uh, for us to come together and practice Dharma. Uh, we're going to carry on, we're going to go to about 11.30 and then at 11.30 we're going to stop mid-sentence and go down for lunch because uh, this is our lunchtime, we have to eat before 12 o'clock. Uh, after lunch, uh, you're also welcome to hang around, uh, to take lunch here or nearby. Uh, after lunch, we'll be heading over to Satira uh, Tamasatran. So this is a completely informal trip. Um, we're just going to take some taxis up and go and hang around. It's a very beautiful, lovely uh, Dharma Center just outside of Bangkok. Uh, so if anybody would like to join us for that, you're welcome to... Uh, we're just going to call some taxis and taxi our way up, shared taxis, uh, taxi our way up there uh, and uh, hang out for the afternoon up there. There's a cafe and a little restaurant and coffee shop and things up there also. You can introduce yourself, right? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, hand over to Bikuni Sandusiga to introduce herself and uh, tell you a little bit about maybe uh, what you're doing in the U.S. And I know many people are very interested in the Bikuni uh, lineage also. One of the requests that I have always have had with Bikunis is because everybody just wants to talk about the ordination of women every time. And they miss the fact that actually the, the Bikunis have very nice dhamma to offer as well, not just to talk about you know, ordin ordination of women. So. Uh, so today's topic, the Transcending the Five Fears, based on a couple of suttas, uh, which I think I posted on the website. If I didn't, I'll post them up afterwards. And meanwhile, I'm going to be doing my job as the sound engineer with my brand new uh, mixer board that we just got. Uh, Victor and I just went and bought. So I'm going to be doing my job twiddling the knobs and then I'll be joining in with you. So if I can hand over to you, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for uh, sharing Dhamma with us today. It's very nice to be here. It's very nice to see all of you. So I, th I think even though I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, um, right here at the beginning, I'll start by, by paying homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Udandamang sangham namasam So, I am um, Santusika Bhikkhuni, as you know. I've been a nun for about eight years and started out in America living with a bhikkhuni 
ordained by a by a bhikkhuni in America as a anagarika or mechi in the beginning. And I I've trained in various places, but the, the real beginning of my interest in the Dhamma started when my son became a monk. Um, he's standing in the back in the white shirt next to the venerable. <laughs> he was a monk for 14 years, 10 of those years in Thailand. And during those 10 years, I was able to come to Thailand many times and spend time in the monasteries where he was living and learn from very amazing Dhamma masters. I can't, um, I can never repay them. It's so powerful to have such a change in one's life. And I think you're all very fortunate to be here in Thailand. Uh, whatever you can do to seek out such teachers, I would recommend. Might recommend doing that. So uh, things began to gradually change. It, it was also during a time when I was training as a minister uh, in interfaith, uh, interfaith minister, not uh, not just a Christian, but we studied Christianity and Judaism and a little bit of Islam. And, Hinduism and Buddhism, but not so much as a as a comparative religions type of uh, study. It wasn't. It was somewhat academic, but not uh, not so much that emphasis. More of an emphasis of hands-on spirituality, helping people incorporate what they called there the golden truth that ran through all the religions into their lives. So meditation and service and study and um, somehow a, a, a letting go of the self. And so it was, a, it was a very fertile time and during that time I would come to Thailand and spend time living in monasteries and so my infusion of Buddhism was stronger than any other religion in the program because I was kind of on my own program. And um, it just changed, changed my life. Changed my life so much that the faith in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha grew to be so strong that there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. Nothing else that was really important. And I say that not not because it was a kind of go on top of the mountain and, and just, you know, meditate. It was much more incorporate that into into life and be present and available to people who are seeking support. And as, as you know, they're everywhere. And so now I have a small monastery in America where I teach and I live, and there are various women who stay there and live with me for some periods of time uh, as students and supporters, and they, they tell me that they find it unique <laughs> and, and rich uh, because they can kind of drink in the Dhamma almost continually. And we have uh, programs where people come in for meditation, they come in for various kinds of teachings, for studying the suttas, for workshops, 
um, very directly applicable to our lives, moment by moment. How do we change our habits? How do we overcome addictions? How do we deal with with life changes like divorce or separation or loss? How do we how do we apply the Four Noble Truths in our life day to day? Actually dealing with our feelings and working with that in a way that's transformational. Things like that. So my part of what I love about this life that I'm so grateful to be able to lead is that I get to read the scriptures a lot. I get to study. We get to study together with others. And uh, while I was doing that, I came across this sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya. So that's the numerical discourses. And there were a couple of things that jumped out at me about it because uh, a couple of things that I hadn't seen anywhere else in the canon. It might be somewhere else, but I hadn't run across it yet. And one part was that the Buddha talked about, they talked about four powers that we can develop. And those four powers, which I'll get to in a minute, eliminate or help us transcend five fears. And these five fears, well, I'll ask you, have you, have you ever been afraid of losing your livelihood? Yes. Anybody? Yes? <clears throat> I have very good job security. You do. It may, it may not be very much financial security, but you have, you have job security. I can't get fired. Yeah, I have the same situation. You don't quite know where your next meal is coming from, but you have job security. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people that I know, that's a, that's a continual concern. Um, you know, losing our livelihood. Have you ever feared um, getting a bad reputation? I see some very honest people up here in front. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, the third one that the Buddha listed I found a little bit interesting. is fear of being timid in an assembly. Well, first time I, I thought, well... Public speaking, for one thing, speaking out in public is something that people tend to be afraid of. I know in America there, there was a survey done some years ago, and they listed a lot of things that people fear, and they asked people to rate them what they're most afraid of, and speaking in public rated higher than death. So it's definitely something people worry about. And I think the Buddha had uh, something more in mind. Uh, like, wh are we comfortable when we're in a group of people? Are we comfortable when the people that we are um, associated with meet together? Are we, are we at ease and confident in those situations? I know for myself, I spent, I've spent decades being uncomfortable. <laughs> in all kinds of situations. And so, so we can look at, at how we transcend that. And then the fourth one is really common for all of us. Whether we think about it or not, it lurks in the back of our minds. It's the fear of death. 
And I think much of what drives us in many ways is that background knowledge that this isn't going to last and we haven't really faced that. We haven't learned to use it as a dhamma yet, perhaps, uh, to become at ease with that. And then the fifth one takes us a step further, fear of what will happen after we die. My mother's 87 now, and she asks me, do you think there's heaven and hell? And I say, I do, I do. I think we can find evidence of that right here and now. I don't think it's going to be a lot different after we die. I mean, in some ways, I think it will be very different, but that uh, a kind of plane of misery or plane of, of happiness and ease, I think, certainly exists. And then I tell her, but you know, you've been so good all your life. I don't think you have to worry about that. So the Buddha, in, in this um, discussion that he enters, where he talks about these four powers, it's at the end of the sutta where he says, oh, if you develop these four powers, then you don't have to be afraid of these five things. No more fear or concern about these five things. For most of us, that's, that's pretty significant. So, usually if I talk about this with someone one-to-one, -one, they say, okay, tell me what the four powers are, please, I'm waiting. <laughs> I really want to know. So the first one that the Buddha talks about is the power of wisdom and developing the power of wisdom. And I can remember that it feels like it wasn't that long ago, maybe a couple of decades now, that I wondered, you know, what really is wisdom and who has it? I never was much of a fan of, you know, actors and sports figures and all that kind of stuff, musicians. I was really interested in, like, who can you really look up to in this world? And, and there are, you know, there are a few people that are popularly known um, that I thought, okay, that, that's admirable. Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., for some aspects of their lives, not all, but but to really think about, you know, what what does it mean for somebody to be wise, and and how do you get that? So the Buddha's description here, I think, is helpful. He says, one who clearly has clearly seen and explored with wisdom the qualities that are unwholesome and reckon to be unwholesome, and those that are wholesome, reckon to be wholesome. And then he goes through another few categories. Those things that are blamable or blameless, those things that are dark or bright, those things that should not be cultivated and the things that should be cultivated those things that are worthy of the noble ones and those things that are unworthy of the noble ones. So basically, what he's saying is you really look at that, really look at those things. 
really develop the wisdom to see the difference. So when I talk about habits quite a lot in my teachings in, in America because habits drive so much of our life. And a lot of times they're unconscious. We can develop them in ways that are unconscious, like from our parents, perhaps watching them, um, or <clears throat> following along with customs or tradition. You know, there are lots of ways that we develop habits. And do we really look at which ones are leading upwards and which ones are leading downwards? Which ones are leading to Nibbana? Because that's how you get to Nibbana through our body, speech, and mental actions, um, and how those form habits and form our character and create our karma and the general trajectory that we're on. And so what's beautiful about identifying what our habits are and what our tendencies are and, and that ability to say, oh, this one, this aspect of this one, this is taking me away from happiness. This is not leading to my long-term welfare and the welfare of others. This is leading to pain and suffering and the pain and, or the pain and suffering of others or both. And then to be able to see that and then once we make that conscious, we have the ability to change that. But that's kind of another Dhamma talk. So we'll go on here. So looking at those, those qualities and understanding where they lead. Uh, oh, just what I, my mind flashes on a, uh, a period of time when I had a big decision to make. My son was a monk in Thailand and I was able to talk to him on the phone and I talked about this decision and he said, you have to think about the kama. You have to think about what, what's going to happen down the line you know, what, what does this lead to? And I thought, how do I figure that out? But at least that whole, it provoked me to think, to reflect, to take that into my contemplation and meditation. And it was possible to start to feel out what the, the better decision would be. Of course, looking back, it's so much easier to go, wow, that was, that was, really, that was a really good decision. Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> it did lead to so much welfare for myself and others. So the second power, so that's, that's, that was the first power, the power of wisdom and developing it and consciously, intentionally developing it. And then the second power supports that. It's the power of energy. And the Buddha said, basically, he goes through the same list of, of things. The energy to abandon what is unwholesome and to cultivate what is wholesome. To abandon what is blamable and dark and not to be cultivated. And those things that are unworthy of noble ones. And he says, one makes an effort, arouses energy, applies one's mind, and strives for this. And I love that sequence. I think maybe I should make a little sign and hang it in my room, put it on the bathroom mirror. <laughs> oh, 
make an effort, arouse energy, apply your mind, and strive. And then he goes through the positive ones. You generate the desire to obtain the qualities that are wholesome and those that are blameless, those that are bright, those that should be cultivated, those that are worthy of the noble ones. And you know, who are the noble ones? I mean, we can look to any of the disciples of the Buddha, monastic, lay, doesn't matter. What matters is how wholesome do we live our lives? How committed? How clear, how compassionate. So again, he says, we, we, we strive to cultivate these qualities, these wholesome, blameless, bright qualities that are worthy of cultivation and worthy of the noble ones. And Again, we make an effort, we arouse energy, apply our mind, and strive for this. This is called the power of energy. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. The third power is the power of blamelessness. This one, he only gives two lines to this one. It's, and what is the power of blamelessness? Here, a noble disciple engages in blameless bodily, verbal, and mental action. This is the power of blamelessness. So, of course, what we're talking about here is virtue. Acting in a way that the wise will not blame you for later. Body, speech, and mind. The mental part is really important. And the power of our intention is so strong. I don't know if you had a chance to think about this or to work with it on a mental level, but I notice for myself a thought coming into the mind can change my direction in so subtle a way, and yet it can lead me way over there instead of way over there, just by changing a little bit. Now, a simple example, I'm chanting, right? You do this chanting every morning, every evening, same thing, same thing. If a thought comes into my mind about a memory of when I was you know, told I was chanting too loudly, my voice goes softer without my even wishing it to go softer. It's immediate. I hear it. It's so interesting that just the thought coming into the mind, there wasn't any evaluation there. Am I really chanting too loudly now? No, it just immediately changed. It's that powerful. It's that direct. And it, and it works with much more important, powerful things, you know, so paying attention to the thoughts and which ones we give energy to and which ones we don't is a very potent practice, very powerful. And I do, I do trust, I believe, based on experience that 
it's not just my my mind and my speech and my bodily actions that get affected by the thoughts that we have and, and cultivate. I think there is a ripple out into the universe, if you will. Things change. Uh, they reverberate. So to be blameless. And then it was this fourth power that I hadn't come across before. Um, now, it's in the, um, in the numerical discourses in a, in a number of places, but it's, it's uh, interesting to me. It's, it's the power of sustaining a favorable relationship. I thought, wow, we've got wisdom and energy and blamelessness, which is, you know, really virtue. And, and I've seen those many times before in the lists that the Buddha makes, but this one, sustaining a favorable relationship, how practical. I really, really like the Buddha's directness and practicality. And so how do we sustain a favorable relationship? So he tells us. He says there are four means of sustaining a favorable relationship. Giving, endearing speech, beneficent conduct, and impartiality. There's another sutta where this comes up. It's a sutta called Hataka. This is a lay disciple of the Buddha, Hataka Alabi. Alabi. And he came to see the Buddha, the Buddha and he had a, a large number of people, 500 people were tagging along with him. And the Buddha said, oh, you've got kind of a large retinue here. How do you manage to maintain this large retinue? And uh, Hantika says, well, Bhante, I do it through the four means of sustaining a favorable relationship that you've taught me. You know, when I see that someone would be sustained with a gift, I give them a gift. And when I see that someone would be sustained by endearing speech, I sustain him by endearing speech. And when I see that someone would be sustained by beneficent conduct, I sustain him by beneficent conduct. And if I see that someone would be sustained by impartiality, I sustain him by impartiality. And that's how I have these 500 folks hanging around me. And uh, the Buddha said, you know, everyone in the past who has, who has um, sustained a large retinue, they've done it in this way. And everyone in the future who will sustain a large retinue, they do it in this way. They will do it in this way. And then I was talking about this once and someone said, oh, wait a minute, come on, hold up. Um, there are people who have a lot of followers and they, they do it by force. They do it by coercion. And people are bound down to them and they're paying homage to them and they're paying taxes to them and whatnot and so on. And, and I, I thought about that and I thought, yeah, but I don't think that's what the Buddha is talking about because the moment somebody's not watching, those people are going to steal from that person. They're going to 
They're going to stab them in the back. They're going to, you know, you know how it is. You know how it is at work. You know how it is when you work for a company that's not very supportive or giving. You know what? What do people do? They they take home the office supplies. You know, it's like, you know, they feel cheated. They don't feel supported. They don't feel generous. It's sad. And, and we we can be generous. And we, you know, it's good to it's good to be in situations to place ourselves in situations where we want to be generous, because we do have good relationships with people who are willing to give gifts and endearing speech and beneficent conduct. What about that impartiality thing? So, so I want to talk a little bit about each of these because I think it's worth kind of thinking, well, when does this happen in our lives and how do we see it? I think the giving gifts part is, is probably pretty obvious. You know? It's amazing how giving someone something and something that they might keep with them, something that they might see from time to time and how that brings us to their mind. How that can, you know, we can bring, we can offer that with a blessing and, and that can be a source of support. That reminder. I have, uh, besides my son, I also have a daughter. So I was quite busy in my life before I became a nun. I just want you to know. Um, and my daughter has two children now. And the, the oldest one is a girl. Her name is Ella. And she, even when she was, I think about 15 months old. So I don't know if you have a sense of of what they're like at that age. She would give me gifts, especially as I was leaving. She would give me a gift. She would give me um, some little trinket that she has. One day I was there and she got a postcard in the mail with some kittens on it and from from some auntie and and I was just about to leave, and she gave me the postcard. I said, are you sure you want to give this to me? And she said, yes, let me give this to you. And I put that up in the room I was living in. You know, I had shrines all over the place in my room, and this little picture of the kittens went there, and it reminded me of her. You know, it was sweet. One day I was leaving for a trip and she gave me a string and she said this is to keep you safe and then she gave me another string and she said this is to make sure you're on time <laughs> you know where does that impulse come from to give a gift and and of course it's with that that meaning that generosity, that caring. When we do that for others, it sustains them, it sustains us, and it sustains the relationship. It's beautiful. Endearing speech. How much it matters to say a kind word, 
And we can always do that. I don't know if you know Ajahn Pasano. He's, he was in Thailand for a long, long time. He's abbot at the monastery in Northern California, and I went there a lot. In the beginning, it was because my son was training in the same order and the same lineage, and I wanted to understand what 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 is he up to, what's going on. <laughs> so I would talk to Ajahn Pasano about, <clears throat> about things and. He was such a, a wise teacher for me for years. And he said one time that we always have the opportunity to be generous. It, it, it's always there. We can always smile. We can always say something kind. It's a wonderful thing to reflect on. And how much as I look at the relationships that have been sustained over the years in my life, how much those supportive and encouraging words have been a part of what's really lifted the heart and, and what we can reflect on when, when things are challenging. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. And of course, they have to be true words. Again, you know, it's not it's not the kind of thing where you're you're in an environment where people just say what they're supposed to say, but actually heartfelt. That's real endearment, real endearment. And then beneficent conduct, conduct something that you do that's beneficial. Thing that you actually do. You know? Call the contact and make the connection for someone. Um, help them with something. And one of the things I saw in Thailand, because my son lived at Wat most of well, a lot of the time, and I would be there up there in Isan, you know. Farmers. One thing that was really striking was that whenever someone is trying to do something, you know, lift something heavy, someone comes along and picks up the other end without a word. It's just like right there, looking, always noticing what would be helpful here, what would be useful. I have to say, in America, there's this attitude like, I can do it myself. I can fold this big blanket by myself. I don't need your help on the other end. Like, what good is that? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's great to feel self-empowered, I guess, to a, to a point. But to be able to work together, to do things together, to just have that feeling that someone would pitch in. Because really, there are so many things in life we can't do by ourselves. We need to do it together. So, so this kind of beneficent, beneficial conduct, supporting someone in that way. I grew up on a farm uh, in Indiana. It's a little bit south of Chicago, out in the country, where there's nothing but cornfields, really. And. There was a tremendous sense of community there. The town that was close by 
had about 2,500 people in it. Most everybody knew everybody. And farmers really help each other. So one year, it was towards the end of the harvest, my father got his foot in a grain auger. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like this thing that carries the corn up to the top of the bin and, or truck or whatever it's on. And his foot got in there, so it's sharp and it made a mess. And um, he grabbed onto the side of the truck and he pulled himself out and then got fresh to the hospital an hour away. <laughs> So he was, he was done with the harvest, even though he wasn't done with the harvest, and uh, the neighbors came in and finished, finished the harvest. And one year, like maybe a decade before that, one of our neighbors, the land borders each other, and the, one of the neighbors um, got sick, was really sick in the springtime, couldn't plant his crops, and so my dad planted all his corn, his whole farm. It's like, this is how you sustain a relationship. This is how you don't have to worry about a loss of livelihood. Because there are people there who are going are gonna to catch you when you fall. This is what's missing where I live now. I moved when I was um, working as a software designer and engineer. So I worked in high tech and I moved with my two half-grown children to San Francisco area, Silicon Valley. And uh, it was like suddenly I entered the land of no aging, sickness, or death. <laughs> it was all glitz. I mean, it was like, you know, you're working with people who are all in like their 30s, maybe their 40s, you know, and everybody thinks they've got the world by the tail and they've got money and you can do things and, and uh, my mother would call from this little town in Indiana, and she would tell me all about, you know, so-and-so got in an accident, and this person, and so-and-so died, and it's got cancer. And I'm like, stop, stop, stop. I don't want to hear about all that. I'm in the land of no aging sickness or death. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the people that I worked with or even, even spent time with socially that really was related to the real issues of life. There was one coworker whose family, five of his family members got killed in a plane crash and I didn't even know about it. Can you imagine? So disconnected from each other. Who's gonna catch you when you fall in an environment like that? We're really missing community. We're really out there on a limb when we don't have community. So, even though listening to the litany of, you know, whose kid did what, who's, who's got what problem back in that little town, one thing is for sure is they're looking after each other. They all know about each other's business. It's like living in a fishbowl. My mother always said it's like living in a fishbowl. <laughs> but at least, you know, they step up when something goes wrong. They're there. And uh, 
And so it's it's like just it's just reflecting on sustaining those relationships, sustaining relationships, and caring about each other, and, and building community, and and building community with with people. You know, the Buddha talked about the people whose land borders your land, and the people who are, you know serving you in, in various ways. The ones you might think of are uh, above us. They're still serving us in, in ways that, you know, whether the government officials or the police department or, you know, how do you, how do you have relationships with, with people? How do you have relationships with a person? You go to the, to the shop and they, they check you out at the grocery store. I used to drive across the bay, so I'd go over the bridge. Not the Golden Gate it was a less exciting bridge than that, but um, every day you pass through the toll booths and you pay your toll. Okay, am I gonna am I gonna do this without even looking at that person? Am I gonna just leave the radio on and the sunglasses and just buy, or do I shut off the radio and take off the sunglasses and say hello? You know, it's just like. We can make those moments meaningful if we want to, and we can, and we can create relationships with people if we want to. Impartiality. How many of you have children? Okay, a few. How many of you have parents? A few more have parents have had, you know, they're somewhere, right? What's it like when children are treated with impartiality versus partiality? You know, like if, if parents treat one child better than the others, or they treat one child worse than the others, that, that is a really hard thing. I've seen this in families. It really, it really leaves a mark. And it's hard because people don't all have the same qualities and aptitudes, and we don't even like them all the same. You know, that everybody's different. But that effort, that recognition that in some cases what's needed is an impartiality lifting someone up, you know, like society can hold valuable um, certain qualities over others. You know, maybe that child that does well in school gets more recognition than the one who just wants to take everything apart. But that taking apart, there's some real skill in that, you know? The one who wants to watch TV all the time, well, maybe they're a student of social values, who knows what's going on there. But to be able to, to really see the, the gifts that people have and, and appreciate that. So and being careful not to, not to hold one above the other and help bring forth what helps them shine so 
we can probably find other ways in which what the Buddha is talking about here makes makes a difference. I know from living in monastic life, you know, or in, or in, in educational settings, if teachers have favorites, it, it really it, it really has an impact. So much so that they've done these studies. Some of you may have heard of them. It's been it's it's been years now. They've been doing this kind of thing where a group of, of researchers went into the school and they said, we want to give these standardized tests. And these tests will show who are going to be the real shining stars in the future in this class. And they're giving this test, but it doesn't show any of that. It, what they did was they randomly chose students who were kind of at the bottom of the class and said, these are going to be the shining stars. And they tell the teacher that, and the teacher knows that, and students know that, I guess. I'm wreaking havoc in people's lives. But anyhow, that's a different story. <laughs> but they come back months later, and those kids are doing great. And they were just like average to like losing, you know? They're doing great. Why? Because the teacher believes they're going to be a shining star, and they give them a little more attention. They say, okay, you can do this. You know, I know you can do this. So, you know, I don't know about you, but the, the teachers I really appreciated were the ones who kind of really tried to do that for everybody. So maybe that's what the Buddha's talking about. You might be able to find other examples where impartiality makes a difference. So then the Buddha um, had this nice little conversation with Hathaka. And then he... Uh, gave a Dhamma talk, he instructed, encouraged, inspired, and gladdened Hataka with a Dhamma talk. I'm thinking, wow, I wish I could have been there for that. Oh. And then when, when Hataka left, the Buddha said this to the monks. He said, you should remember Hataka as one who possesses eight astounding and amazing qualities. What eight? He's endowed with faith. He is virtuous. He has a sense of moral shame and moral dread. He is learned, generous, and wise, and he has few desires. You should remember him as one who possesses these eight astounding and amazing qualities. So my question earlier, like, who do you look up to? Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good list. Someone with those qualities. And we can, we can be that. Don't ever think that you can't change the things that aren't really the way you want them to be in yourself. It's, it's so possible. It just, it takes a certain amount of energy and wisdom and we can develop these things. And I think a certain amount of support from our friends. So creating those sustained, so the creating and sustaining those favorable relationships. There are a couple of things in here that might need a little bit of explanation, like moral shame and moral dread. Those are Hiri um, Uttapa, the Pali. They show up quite frequently in the canon and then also the vinyana. 
And what that is, is a conscience. It's not about uh, guilt and shame. Um, many of us have been conditioned to have guilt and shame. It's more about, okay, I see that what I did there wasn't very good. It wasn't leading to, to the well-being of myself and others. It actually created some harm. So I feel bad about that. And I'm going to make a determination to not do that one again. But it's not like hanging on to that and clinging to it and making myself into a bad person as a result. It's, it's, really, it's really just a healthy conscience and a determination to do better. And moral dread. When we think about the things we're afraid of, like those five fears I talked about in the beginning, and the Buddha says, we can transcend those. We don't have to have those. Being free of those, think about it. No fear of death. No fear of what happens after death. You can be anywhere in any assembly with confidence without any fear of being timid or worried. Never have to worry about a bad reputation if somebody spreads a bad rumor about you. It doesn't matter because you didn't do it. But there's this idea of moral dread. And that's really the only thing we need to be afraid of. Doing something wrong. Doing something unwholesome. And that, that extends out into forever until Nibbana. The only thing we need to fear is wrongdoing. And we have the ability to purify the mind, to turn away from what's unwholesome, and to do what's good. The Buddha said that again and again and again. He taught this in so many ways. And what else he said is, you can do this. If, it couldn't, if you couldn't do this, I wouldn't tell you to do this. You can do this. Wow. How wonderful is that? And we don't have to go, well, you know, it's 60 years now and I've been like this and like that. Who cares? It's like, change now. It's not, it's not too late. And okay, I've been working at this a long time and I still have that irritation problem. I still get angry. So what? You know? It should be better than that. Well, not. It should be be with it the way it is. That's where we have to start. Oh, yeah, that's here. That came up again. Okay, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna treat it differently this time. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be present with it without acting on it, and I'm gonna kind of hold it out here in front of me and look at it as an object and really investigate this thing, this irritation, this this anger, this sadness this fear, whatever it is. I'm just going to really look at this. I'm going to feel where it is in my body. It's right there in the body and mind, where the body and mind meet. That's the transformational point. If we can train ourselves to be present with that, watch it shift, then we can see things really change. They really change. 
So there was one other sutta that I wanted to mention. It's related to that idea of timidity, being timid. So the Buddha said that there are five qualities that make for self-confidence in the training. So we're, all of us here, we're, we're trainees. Oh, well, at least I don't, I don't know about that corner over there. But I'm definitely in the trainee camp. Um, we're, we're training. Um, until, until we're enlightened, we're training. And I know you're, you're in training because otherwise you wouldn't be here on a Saturday morning. You'd be somewhere else doing who knows what, but you know, you're here, which, I, which I'm very happy about. I commend you for that. And, um, and so as trainees, we can, we can develop these five qualities. And he says, someone who's endowed with faith is virtuous, learned, energetic, and wise. Notice we've seen these come up before. Whatever, they don't ever have to be timid. Whatever timidity there is in one without faith does not exist in one endowed with faith. Therefore, this quality makes for self-confidence in the training. That faith, that faith is the faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. That faith in the qualities that we chant the qualities of the Buddha, the qualities of the Dhamma, the qualities of the enlightened Sangha. When we, when we develop that faith, there is a self-confidence that comes. And one monk, Ajahn Suchito, he's the abbot at Chitter's Monastery, was at a retreat that he was teaching, and he said, those people that have that, they have a kind of buoyancy. They have a kind of unrelenting, underlying happiness. That's true. Developing that faith. We don't have to be timid. We have self-confidence because we have that confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma and the Sangha. Whatever timidity there is in one who is immoral does not exist in one who is virtuous. And we probably all know that. If we don't have anything to hide, we can be self-confident. Sometimes we are given the idea that it's fun to be naughty. And we have a lot of expressions in language that suggest that's fun. But it isn't really. You look at the results. There's no way that's fun. It's fun to be good. It's really fun to be good. That's where the real fun is. And then you never have to feel worried about anything. You don't have to worry you're going to get caught for cheating on your taxes because you didn't do it. You know, if anything didn't come out right, it's totally innocent. Okay, I, I messed up. Okay. Don't even have to worry. Whatever timidity there is in one who is unlearned does not exist in one who is learned. Now I find this challenging because there's so much that I can't even learn at all, right? There was a time, I think, in human 
social development where you could actually know everything. You know, the Renaissance person, they, you know, but once we have electricity, there's no way to know everything. <laughs> Stuff is happening behind the scenes. No way we all understand that. How did that light come on? I don't know. Flip the switch. You know, <laughs> uh, when I worked in high tech, I was like, I'm supposed to be an expert at something, but there's no way to keep up with it all. So what do we need to learn in order to be confident? Well, learning about oneself is pretty important. What's going on in here? That's pretty important. Learning about the Dhamma, I think, is so important. And a few other things, but you know what they are. The timidity there is in one who is lazy does not exist in one who is energetic. Another source of self-confidence. If we really apply ourselves and make our best effort, it's really helpful to feeling happy and secure. But again, I want to caution against guilt. We start looking at lists like this, it's real easy to go into that guilt zone. And that does nobody any good. It's not what the Buddha recommended. In fact, I don't even know if he ever talked about it. But it's, it's like, that's, that's not the way forward. The way forward is to acknowledge, forgive, and learn. Um, Ajahn Brahm uses that. He calls it the AFL method. AFL, like the American Football League. Acknowledge, forgive, and learn. Let it go. And also with others. Forgiveness in my book is not about forgetting. It's about being clear and letting it go. Staying away from people who are going to be abusive again and again because <laughs> they haven't gotten clear. Um, but clarity and kindness, clarity and compassion But not that guilt thing. No beating ourselves up, it doesn't help. Um, whatever timidity there is in one who is unwise does not exist in one who is wise. Therefore, this quality makes for self-confidence in the training. For sure. So that's my a little offering. So I'd love to hear from you. Any questions? And you can ask me anything. It doesn't have to be about this, or it could be. It can be about what is it like to be a grandmother in a bikini? Whatever you want to ask is fine. <laughs> I, I wanted to come back. I'm going to ask something that every many of the people will want to ask, but probably won't. Um, but I did want to come back to that question of being uh, treating the children differently, oh. uh, partly because I was on the receiving end of oh. that. On which side? Uh, on the bad side. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> which is probably why I take so much joy in being naughty. Uh, but there was uh, clear studies, <laughs> clear studies done on this that parents will provide, I think it was four kinds of help. There was uh, material help, uh, emotional help, help with jobs like looking after their kids, uh, and one other kind of help I can't remember. 
and the child they perceive as being more successful, they provide more of these four kinds of help. And the child they perceive as being less successful, they actually provide less. But when you ask the parents, they always said it was the other way around. But when you ask them, like, well, how much have you given them, you know, in terms of money? How much time have you spent with them? How much do you help them? Uh, in actual fact, that they didn't. They would spend more time with the child they thought was more successful, not less. Uh -huh. But none of the parents actually realized that uh -huh. until it was quantified. Uh -huh. So I think what, what's important is to become conscious of what we're doing around that as parents. I mean, you really have to think about, I want to treat these children fairly. That has to be a primary value. And, and it's really hard because they're so different. You have one child that wants to, you know, go to college and, and do all that and you help them. And you have another child that doesn't care anything about that. You want to go live in a, in a cabin in the woods and write poetry. How do you make that kind of equitable? What do you do? Well, you can try to find them a cabin in the woods. <laughs> and, and, and lift them up in a way that helps them to be lifted up. You know? So I think, I think that's part of it, really becoming conscious. Because we do, we are unconscious about a lot of things. And what's really been interesting to me is ways in which I've treated my children that I have not liked the way I treated them or didn't even really realize I was doing it. And then when, they're, they're both very good at making me aware of things. I appreciate that. <laughs> and then when, when, I'm, when I'm forced to be aware of it, I look at it and I go, where did that come from? And it can be very, very subtle. And it came from my own upbringing. I didn't even realize I was having that this habit was, was developing in me and I didn't even know it. And then at the time, at the moment when it, it, there's the trigger for that habit, out it comes. It's not my habit. I, got it, I inherited it somehow. So it's really important to be aware of that. Once it's conscious, you can change it. And habits have a specific anatomy. There's a trigger, there's a behavior, there's a reward, and there's a craving involved. And you just look, look at all of those pieces and then you can change that behavior. There's one actress who said, sometimes I open my mouth and my mother comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it gets worse as you get older. It's like, oh, where did that come from? I don't even agree with that. I don't even believe that. <laughs> the question that I think people uh, are not going to ask but would come up was sustaining favorable relationships when it comes to a partner. Oh. Something that I don't have experience <clears throat> with, but even so, sometimes people ask me, and I'm like, we're not the people for giving advice on that. <laughs> but I am, believe me. I've been there, done that. Um, so, you have a, a couple of words of advice for that kind of sustained yeah. relationship? The first, the first word is pick the right, well not really the right one, but pick a good one. Pick, pick one that you fit with, that you can admire, that is going to treat you well. Um, picking someone who's abusive is not a good idea. And, my standard, of course, you have to really understand whatever situation it is, but 
Um, if if you're in if you're involved with someone who's abusive and they refuse to see that and they are not working hard to change it because it takes hard work to change that kind of thing. And I'm talking about, you know, put downs and sarcasm and stuff. Sometimes that's as damaging as being beat up. Those are not favorable relationships. So first of all, you want to sustain if if it's a favorable relationship, not one that tears you down and tears you apart. The Buddha never, believe it or not, contrary to popular belief, at least in the Pali Canon, the Buddha never praised living with difficult people. He praised living with people that you can be in harmony with, peaceful, happy, flowing together like milk and water. He never said, oh yeah, it's good to live with this difficult person who's constantly pestering you so that you it'll, it'll push your buttons and rub your edges and then you'll get better. It's like, no, it doesn't really work that way in my experience. And he did not say that. So first, first thing, it's a fa- make sure it is a favorable relationship, and then sustaining it. You know, um, we had a visiting monk at our, at our little monastery, a Sri Lankan monk. He's been a monk for fifty-eight years. I mean, I know he's counting the novice period because he ordained when he was twelve, but really, you know, being a monk that long is so great. And he said. You know, in America, people say, I love you, honey. I love you. You know? Uh, he said in Sri Lanka that, you know, he said the Americans are much better about this. Like, Sri Lanka, they don't do that. I don't know. I've never been to Sri Lanka, but, and I think it's changing everywhere probably. But to that endearing speech, it's not like, oh, yeah, yeah, she knows. I only have to tell her once a year. He goes, no. <laughs> no, to really express what's positive and, and what's, what's admirable and seeing that in each other and, and supporting that in each other, being really honest. And I don't mean, oh, honesty the way I used to think it was honest. What was honest was to tell the person how I felt. That's what I thought I had to do to be honest. Well, I'll tell you, those feelings are not reliable. They are not sustainable, and they are not to be believed necessarily, and they are not to be shared every time. I can tell you. <laughs> so, really, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't think that you have to air every unpleasant feeling. You have to work with them. Work with those unpleasant feelings. It helps so much. So that. I had this experience of being irritable with someone I'm close to. I mean, you know, I found this person really irritating, I have to tell you. <laughs> and and whenever and whenever I would become irritable, the person knew, you know, and they'd say, Are you being ir- are you are you upset with me? You know, and I'd say, well, um, but then I had to start asking myself, did they really do anything wrong? And I thought, well, how do I evaluate that? Of course, they did something that I felt irritated by, but did they really do anything wrong? And I decided, well, my standard is going to be the five precepts. Did they do something that breaks one of the five precepts? And the truth was, no, they weren't doing anything wrong. And then I started using that measure for myself. 
Because a lot of the things I would beat myself up about would be things like, you know, well, I said that was a stupid thing to say, or, you know, I, I really didn't behave quite appropriately in that situation, or whatever. And then I'd worry about that. I'd worry about what people think of me. Somebody didn't like what I said. If they had liked it, I would have felt fine about it, but they didn't like it, so then I'm going over it and over it in my mind. Okay? So then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, did I break one of the five precepts? No. I didn't really do anything wrong. Okay, I can become more skillful, it's true, but don't beat yourself up to, you know. So, so as I would think about this in this situation, I'd feel irritated, and then when the person said, so are you upset with me, I'd say, you didn't do anything wrong. I feel irritated, but you didn't do anything wrong. It was amazing how I felt different right away. Just saying that out loud, but you didn't do anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. My own heart would shift. And I know it was like this big sigh in the room, you know, like everything's not, everything's okay. It's just I'm, I'm irritable. Who knows why? You know, there's something. And, and then, of course, a little more investigation, and I could understand why. I was, I was feeling irritable because some bill didn't get paid on time and I get scared when that happens and, you know, whatever it is, you know. So it's like that kind of sustaining our relationships has a lot to do with not projecting our stuff onto other people, really understanding those boundaries and, and to not try to meddle over there in their stuff unless they ask for it. They want your advice. That's another really hard one to to live up to when we're together with someone. So those are that's my that's my little the thing about being irritated with people as opposed to being patient with people is when you're patient you don't have to do anything. When you're irritated you there's always you you're always trying to change somebody or something and if you flick it into patience you're like it's great, I don't have to do anything. And I have a tendency towards laziness, so, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so it's, it's helping you. Uh, the, the talk on always expressing your feelings, I'm, I'm not sure I really uh, associate with because I don't really have any. Um, uh-huh. For two reasons, I'm male and I'm English. So yes. we don't... <laughs> a double whammy. <laughs> okay, does somebody have a question or a comment? or? Uh, yes, over at the back. I, I wanted to ask you, what were your, what were you like before this transformation? Mm. Okay, and did you have, did you see the need to become a nun to be where you are today? Mm. Those are very good questions. Yeah. If I can repeat the question, because some people might not have heard it, and also we're recording. So the first question is, what were you like before you were a nun? Uh, I think it's already a big question. Maybe start with that one. Well, I think, I think what I heard was before the transformation, which. Okay. Yeah, those two things didn't quite coincide. But, but what was I like before? Well, my mother would repeatedly say to people, "My daughter has really changed." I mean, she was always great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what was I like? I think I was, um, I was very interested in being good, and I was very interested in getting everything right, and I was, um, 
repeatedly unhappy, uh, kind of tending towards the victim role, um, confused about what was really wholesome and unwholesome. There are any number of mixed messages out there about what we should be doing with our lives and what's going to be helpful and good and all that. Um, I was definitely searching and I was definitely not finding it. What was the second part of the question? Oh, um, do you think you need to become a nun to, you know, no. okay. So, in order to transform, do you need to become a, a oh, ordained? Yes. No. Um, and the transformation was happening before I became a nun. And that transformation was fueled by a, a really sincere interest in finding a way out of this dukkha. And the Buddha said that's, you know, that's basically what happens. If we're suffering, we either you know, kind of dissolve into the suffering and, and get overwhelmed by it, or we start to look for a way out. And then Finding uh, the Dhamma was, was huge, and, and being supported in, in developing that in, internally and externally. And, and that was happening before becoming a nun. So no, I don't feel like you have to become a nun or a monk in order to transform. And there are plenty of stories, like um, our friend Hataka here, uh, he, was, he definitely gained some level of enlightenment. That's, that shows up in another part of the canon. And so we can be, and, and what is beautiful about the practice, about the path, about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is that as we develop, we become happier and happier and happier. It's not like an all or nothing, like we work really hard and suddenly at the end, boom. It's, it's really, it's a gradual path and the, and the rewards are gradual. And so the transformation can be very gradual and it doesn't require ordination. However, um, I became a nun, as I said earlier, because of my faith, and because I, I tried, you know, trying as an eight precept nun first, and seeing how much that supported this, this path of purification, and, and then ordaining, gradually those, step by step, just experiencing for myself how at least for myself. There's been this sometimes very subtle, sometimes very profound purification happening. And I feel like the, the vehicle of the monastic form has been extraordinarily supportive in that, in ways I don't think I could ever kind of suss out and figure out and do for myself. But at the, at the core of it, it's, it's making that invitation to the Buddha, to the universe, to whoever's listening out there to be trained. I think that's what's important. Surrender. Surrendering oneself to the training. That training occurs wherever you are, if that's your intention. That the Buddha trains, he trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. And I don't think it matters what outfit you're wearing. It does help though. That's, that's my point. It does help. It has helped. And, yeah. I dread to think what I would have been like if I hadn't got into the monastery. 
Well, some of us need more help than others. <laughs> I know, they can't believe I said that. <laughs> yeah, how can I? <laughs> this is where the big booty becomes as red as her robe. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, uh, you have a question? Or you're scratching your head. Oh, okay. okay, so Sujata. Why is it that the children always expect their parents to be very impartial? Parents are also human beings. They have their own likes and dislikes. Why is it so difficult to forgive one's own parents? So the, the question is, for the people at the back, uh, why is it children have such expectations of their parents to be impartial? Because their parents are also human and also going to make mistakes? That's a really, really good question. And I think a lot of us <clears throat> go through life um, feeling bad about the, the deal we got with our parents. And it's sad, uh, really. Um, I think that we all want to be loved and we all want to be supported and we all want to be respected and it's very helpful when our parents are that way with us but of course parenting is the hardest I think parenting is the hardest job on the planet and it's definitely um, relentless and there are going to be mistakes and at some point we become adults and it's very important to recognize that whatever got missed out, we can, we can fill that in ourselves, and we should. And recognize, as Sujata, point, Sujata points out, that it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be fair. It's not going to be everything we needed. And, and that's okay. We can be grateful for what we what we did receive, and and grateful that you know they did some things right, or we wouldn't be here at this point in time. I mean, there was a lot that parents give. I didn't really get it until I had my own children. And that first that first two weeks with um, Ajah David, man, ay ay ay. They did this for me. My mother did this. Wow. I have a lot more respect now, you know, and um, and so I think I think it's really important that even though we all would love to have have all this stuff be really great, it's not going to be always, and and we've got to try to come out of whatever happened in a positive way and learn from it all that we can. My father was in a. He just had one brother, and his parents treated his brother so much better. And the other relatives observed this, and he kind of just shoved him aside. He turned out to be a really, really great person. And my my mother said, you know, maybe he was a better person because they didn't they tr treated him pretty badly. Well, it doesn't go that way always. We gotta make make as the best we can out of out of what happens. And, and to be, again, kind to ourselves as parents. I've made um, uncountable mistakes as a, as a mother, and 
it helps a lot to admit them and it helps a lot to apologize and it helps a lot to try to change. But what pregnancies the child needs is the parent's perception. The child's perception is different and there's a difference in perception of the two. Why is it that the parents always need to apologize? They did their best and... Maybe so they didn't. They did. She says that the, the child's perception will be different to the parent's perception. So what the child thinks is going to be good for it, it's not yes, necessarily I, what the parent... Yes, and I came from the perception. Okay. Ten years, till ten years ago, I always felt what my parents did was okay. 200% wrong. Just flip it back, because people at the back can't hear you. So. So, so, um, so, thank God I didn't have perfect parents. <laughs> well, the reality is you're not going to have perfect parents. That's just the way it is. Um, so, so, this idea of why should the parents apologize, I'm not trying to say that... Um, I think it's good to apologize anytime we feel we could... It would have been nice if it had been better or different. It doesn't mean you could have made it that way. One of the things when we look back over time is that we don't remember everything. We don't remember the pressures we are under. We don't, we don't appreciate the actual situation we were in. And what you're saying about the children having a different perception than the parents, yeah, of course. And sometimes the parents are right that the children do need a certain thing that the children don't want to have, and that's part of what the responsibility of a parent is, that you, that you you may have to push them in ways, or you may have to have to restrain them in ways that they don't like. I'm not saying that everybody's going to live happily ever after here. It's not how it works. But in ourselves, as we develop, and we want to develop in the Dhamma, and we want to move beyond suffering, then one of the sufferings we can lay to rest is how we feel about that relationship with our parents, accepting them, accepting what happened, Recognizing, okay, that did happen. Um, I don't know if it could have been handled differently or better, maybe, but it was the way it was. And I can fill in the blanks here, and I can appreciate them for what they did. Does that help? Does that make sense? Can I come back to this question? Uh, how do you feel at the moment you shift from the woman to uh, how, do you how do I feel at the moment? About the decision to become a bikini? Because I think you know we're in Thailand, um, we just to have peace in Thailand. Right. Because right. right, right. Because in Thailand, um, the bikini form is is still not so widely accepted. We could say. Well, in America, that that prohibition against the bikini form is non-existent. So there's no one in America who will say, as far as I know, no one has said it to me anyway. People don't think in those terms that, you know, you shouldn't be a bhikkhuni. They, they're more like, why wouldn't you be a bhikkhuni? You know, they read about bhikkhunis uh, at the time of the Buddha, and the Buddha set up that form. And how do I feel about it? I, I, I decided to ordain as a bhikkhuni because, as I said, in the, in the process of, of moving through you know, the, 
the period of being a Mechi and a Garakad eight, with eight precepts and then into being a Samaneri with ten precepts and then a Kuni with 311 rules that I, that I experienced the benefit to my practice and development on the path. But what motivates that whole process is faith in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha. Now, when the Buddha um, decided to ordain women, he could have done it in, in many different ways. He could have said, well, I want to, I'll ordain you with eight precepts and, and that's good enough. That's, that's the role you'll have in the Sangha. But he didn't do that. He gave, he gave women the opportunity to be bhikkhunis, same, same coordination as bhikkhus. And that's pretty powerful and profound. I mean, you don't see that in the Catholic Church, for example. You have nuns and you have priests, but the nuns, that's not actually an ordination, they'll tell you. It's, it's um, really a lay designation. It's like the eight precept nun. And, and the nuns don't have the ability to do the same rites and, and uh, officiate in the same way as, as the priests. So bhikkhunis can do anything bhikkhus can do, really. Now he also... No, you can't do all the same things bhikkhus can't do. <laughs> <laughs> there are some differences, it's true. But they are related to the differences in men and women, and not the differences in um, sort of the empowerment that he was giving people to come into the Sangha. Now he did, he did um, stipulate that the Bhikkhuni Sangha would be junior to the Bhikkhu Sangha. And that makes a lot of sense to me because at that time in India and probably still in some places and in many places in the world, if a woman, women are safe when they're protected by their fathers or their brothers or their husbands or even their sons. And if they don't have that male protection, they are in danger. They are at risk. So what did what would he do with many women wishing to leave their families in the home life and leave that protection? They had to be in some way protected by a male presence. So he made the male Sangha senior to the female Sangha. That way you know, anyone who would want to do them harm could look at that and say, oh, they're protected by the monks. And he also asked the monks to do a lot to support the bhikkhunis. The bhikkhus were required to teach the bhikkhunis, even teach them how to chant the Padimokha. Now, if you've ever heard anybody chant the Padimokha, like 45 minutes or more of nonstop chanting, can you imagine learning that without any recordings or anything written down? Those monks had to repeat that over and over and over and over for the first bhikkhunis to learn that. That's a huge commitment. They were really, really required to help the bhikkhunis learn how to be good bhikkhunis. And so I just, I just don't, I don't, um, fortunately, I feel very fortunate to live in a place where this whole issue of whether or not it's okay to be a bhikkhuni does not exist. And uh, people are supportive. Um, you know, it's it's challenging anywhere in the world to be a monk or a nun because 
the support's always uncertain, but people are supportive, and um, there are people who value the willingness to give your life in this way. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. I'm not completely sure about the male protection thing because in my ha in my home, my mother was the scary one. She's not European, but... Oh, yeah, like, American. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can you sit like this, you know, for a long time and wow. without feeling painful or anything like that? So the question is about the posture. Uh, how can you sit in the posture for hours on end without being in pain? Well... I can tell you that I've been sitting here for a while, as you've observed, and I don't have any pain, so I'm grateful for that. And um, I, it's true that I wasn't conditioned from childhood sitting on the floor, uh, so mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure why it's easy. I, I don't use a half lotus or full lotus posture because I, I do find that painful. I use the, what they call the Burmese easy pose. One leg is like lying behind another, and just quite comfortable. I think it really, really helps to find the right things to sit on. So I'm not flat on the floor. I have one of these mats folded up under me uh, as a bit of a cushion. So when I, when I teach people about meditation, I really invite them to experiment with what they sit on, whether it's a chair or, or a cushion and mat on the floor, because it makes such a big difference, and everybody's body is different. And so it doesn't, I don't think it makes a big difference if you sit on a chair to meditate versus sitting on the floor. I don't think that's where the big difference is. I think the big difference is what the chair is like suited to your body or what the cushions on the floor are like suited to your body. And what you want to uh, do is have a straight spine, but be balanced and comfortable. So if you're sitting on a chair that's got the seat is tilted a little bit, or maybe it's too high for you or too low, that your feet, you want your feet to be able to rest flat on the ground, then you need to do some adjust, adjustments. But if you're sitting on a chair to meditate and you feel like you have to hold your body up to have it be straight, and you have to work at that, then you're going to be sore. Your back muscles will get sore. And the same when you're sitting on a cushion. If I sit flat on the mat, then I have to kind of strain my muscles a little bit to hold myself straight and in balance. If I have a little bit of a cushion, I don't have to do that. I'm just solid. So finding the right cushion and the right degree of softness and firmness, I find, also makes a big difference. If it's too hard, then your limbs fall asleep. If it's, I don't know, if it's too soft, maybe something else happens. But this cushion I you tend to use is quite soft. And I find that really conducive to being straight and balanced. And think of your spine like a stack of coins. That's just balanced. 
So when you, when you start to learn how it feels for your spine to be straight, that the energy can flow freely up and down, and then you just kind of like, there, into that posture, and there's no effort. That's really what's helpful for meditation. So I hope that's useful. I think we're just about done. Uh, question over there. I'm sure they'll. You can go on all day, but we have our lunch, so. <laughs> okay, one last one then, if there was a. There's lady over there on the side. Okay, yeah. Just a short one. Could you suggest for us how, in your experience, the Dhamma can help connect individuals to know how to respond to all the violence and destruction that we see around us in the world, from the family to the global level? Is that the show one? That's like... <laughs> okay, so the, the question is, how can we use the Dhamma to be able to deal with all the violence that we see in the world around us? Is that, am I getting close? Um, in families and globally? This is a really excellent question. We could go on for a long time. I'm happy to talk about this more later if you want to, but in short... If we practice what the Buddha told us to practice, we can be at peace. And all these conditions, it's not to make light of it, because we do need to take action in the world to help, and we do need to exercise compassion. But if we practice the Noble Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, we deal with our feelings, as I was talking about before, seeing them and investigating them, that's really what he talked about in the Four Noble Truths. We actually do that. We actually practice. We can be at peace. We can be happy. We can have a level of security regardless of all the changing and all the, the destruction that happens in the world. And then we can also, from that stability, we can know how to act in a way that's actually helpful. And we can do what we can do and we can let go of the rest. Okay, so uh, it's about all we have time for today then. And thank you very much for coming and sharing the Dharma with us. Uh, you're very welcome, those of you who'd like to join us on the trip this afternoon. Uh, but also tomorrow, we're going to have our cappuccino club at Ariason, uh, which is a, more of a discussion uh, event. But Venerable uh, Santusika will be joining us for that. Uh, tomorrow at Ariasam on Sukhumitsoi Wall. Uh, if we can ask you to finish off with, give us a short blessing mm -hmm. before, we, uh, before we wrap up. And, uh, yeah. So this blessing from my heart to yours through the Dhamma, May you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be enlightened, may you forever rely on the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.